Welcome to Beer Me. I'm your host, Sarah Jane. Every week, I will have a guest on the show to discuss different parts of the beer world. From brewers, importers, educators, this will allow us to examine the dynamic world of beer through different lenses. Whether you're new to beer or a seasoned professional, we will have something for you. So I'm very excited for our guest on the show today. I want to give everyone a little bit of a background as to where the idea for the show came from. So for those of you who've been listening to the show for a long time, you know that we do anything and everything beer, but periodically we kind of dip our toes into beer adjacent things. I think we did a tiki show. I think we did a cider show. And at the end of the day, if it is fermented or distilled, we can usually get away with it. (laughs) So for this show, we are definitely going to be talking about fermentations, but specifically dairy fermentation. So I'd love to welcome to the show Sam Alkine. He is a professor at Cornell University who teaches dairy fermentations, but he has probably the most badass side hustle I've ever encountered, and that is he is a co-owner of the company Norway, and that is spelled N-O-R-W-H-E-Y, because this is a product that is brewed from yogurt whey. So Sam, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show today. I'm very excited to dive into this with you. No, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So before we just fully talk about Norway and how cool it is, um, Tell us a little bit about your background, because I I think your background is fascinating. Thanks. Yeah. So I guess it it begins in in D.C., Maryland area. So I actually grew up in Laurel, Maryland, you know, went to elementary school, middle school, high school there, did my uh, undergrad at the University of Maryland in College Park, and I was studying molecular biology. And uh, near the uh, my senior year, one of my friend's dads, and this is I don't want to date myself too far, but right late, late 90s. Uh, invited me to come homebrew with him, right? And so I went over, I homebrewed at his house, and I was like, wow, this is way cooler microbiology, right? Because it was the fermentation, all the then than what I had been doing. I was like, well, how do I get into that? And so uh, after that, that experience, I was like, this seems like fun. Um, forget about bioinformatics. And uh, I applied to grad programs, and I got in to, and I, I started realizing that a lot of people that taught fermentation were in food science. So I applied to some food science programs. I got into one at Cornell University, and there I went in Ithaca, New York, studied you know fermentation and microbiology. And as I finished my master's there, uh, I got an offer from Miller Brewing Company at the time. Now they've, they've merged a couple times since then, but I got to go out to Milwaukee, and I worked in process and product development for them. So designing new beers, doing novel fermentations, you know, some consumer science research, and I learned a lot there working right for one of the big guys around, you know, you know, the science behind brewing. And consistency. Yes, consistency. Consistency. And I mean, the libraries that some of these big breweries have on just the fermentation research that they've done, right, is amazing. And it doesn't get out there. So it's nice to, to be able to sit back and go through all the archives. And they don't do as much of that hardcore R&D anymore. So that's kind of a, you know, kind of a, a miss. Um, but there was, there was just so much uh, to learn there. Um, it was a, it was a great time, right. You know, cause we, you know, we obviously we had like, you know, the Miller lights and the, the Miller highlights of the world, but we also had our pilot plant, right. Which 
you know, we brewed all sorts of things, you know, under the sun, right? Everything from, you know, imperial stouts to like, uh, I remember, um, I think it was uh, Citra. When that was first coming out, it kind of came through as an experimental hop first. And we got to play with those early on because we were a big, a big company. So you got to, to see the evolution of those kind of things. And then I've worked on weirder things like, you know, sparks and, and things like that. But it was a, an education of learning to ferment everything under, under the sun. So what was some of the craziest stuff that you had to figure out to ferment for us? Right. You know, some of the craziest stuff back in the day, you know, we used to just be called, you know, flavored malt beverages because things like, you know, Zima and, and those products out there were all made with a little bit of malt base. And at the time we weren't doing the sugar brews that have now become popular for hard seltzers and really understanding those fermentation dynamics was something I did back right. You know, almost 15 years ago. Um, and so just kind of changing the mindset of the industry that didn't have to have malt, that we could, you know, use other bases and make something interesting was kind of one of the weirder, weirder things that I've, I've done for sure. I also have brewed with things like chlorophyll. So I made a beer that, you know, turned red under UV light, you know, stuff like that. I like to play around with fermentation and the, and the ingredients that we can use. So from there, uh, I did a brief industry change because I had a microbiology hat. I actually went to go work for Unilever and I did food safety for their North American ice cream business. So I covered Ben and Jerry's, Good Humor, Briars, Popsicle, all that kind of stuff. Learned a bit of that side of the business. Um, and it was really my first exposure to dairy. And then I hit a ceiling there um, and I decided it was time to go back and get my PhD. So I left industry um, and I went to the University of Massachusetts Amherst and got my PhD in food science with a, with a focus on food microbiology. And as I was finishing up that program, my old uh, advisors at Cornell reached out and they said, hey, we have a new uh, position opening up here. We're looking for somebody with experience in dairy fermentation and that has also had industry experience. And so I kind of you know, circled around that with my fermentation work my, my dairy food safety work, and my, my general experience with industry. So I threw my hat in the rink, uh, and I, you know, I got the job. And so I landed at Cornell in 2016. And then that's kind of when this whole initial journey then for Norway serendipitously kind of began. So you're teaching dairy fermentations at Cornell. And then how do you start like, are you just so inspired by all the dairy? You're like, all right, on my off time, I need to I need to do more things with dairy. Or were there other fermentations you were kind of messing around with? Yeah, so I was trying to figure out, you know, what my program was going to be uh, at Cornell, my research program. And uh, like I mentioned, serendipitously, the state of New York, the their Department of Environmental Conservation, came to Cornell and said, hey, we've got this problem here in New York State. We are the leading producer of yogurt in the country. So New York State is the number one producer of yogurt. A lot of that is this Greek yogurt, right? It's a strange yogurt. And when we strain the yogurt, we get what's left. It's this yogurt way that all the protein stays with the yogurt. So like you might think about cheese and you hear about whey protein. Cheese whey has whey protein. The way we make yogurt is we heat treat the whey or the milk so that the all the whey protein stays with the yogurt. So we get this, this liquid now, this whey, it doesn't have any protein to recapture. It's got a lot of lactose. It's got a lot of minerals. And it's, you know, we call it an acid way because it's got a lower pH. It's only four or five, though. It's more like a beer. But for the dairy world, that's that's acidic. And so they, they didn't know what to do with it. Companies were just kind of throwing it away. 
giving it to farmers to feed the cows, but we didn't have a great resource for it. So kind of put back on my brewing hat and I said, hey, well, all right, so what's in this? There's sugar, right? I've spent my whole life, you know, figuring out how to convert sugars tastefully, right, into ethanol. And then we have all these great minerals, calcium, magnesium, potassium, right? These better for you minerals um, that we're just throwing away and they could be, right, they could be harnessed, right? In a uh, you know, this kind of better for you space in alcohol has always been kind of a challenge and it just felt like it circled there. So it was like, all right, how do we put on our fermentation and product development hats to create something interesting here? And so it started with that that kind of approach from the New York DEC. And then I, I pitched the idea to a, a funding agency in New York. We have the New York um, Dairy Promotion Board. And so there is in, in every state, all the dairy farmers pay, uh, you know, they pay 15 cents, I think, for every 100 pounds of milk they produce, kind of goes into the central pot. And that that money is then used either at the state level or at the national level to you know, look at dairy promotion or to look at dairy research. And so, you know, I was a brand new professor, came to the, you know, these dairy farmers. I said, I've got this, you know, idea that potentially we could take this yogurt way that we have in New York State and ferment it into something, you know, more valuable and consumer friendly that could help you know, improve the sustainability of our of our dairy industry and maybe also support the sustainability of our dairy businesses. And and they were willing to initially fund, right, the first steps of that research in the lab. How does the process differ from traditional brewing? Because you've got, with, with brewing, there's a lot of steps that lead up to the actual fermentation because there's so much you need to do to process the grain and get those fermentable sugars ready to be converted into alcohol co2 so what what does the process look like for you and like i'm assuming like temperatures are probably different you know that kind of thing yeah so it's a yeah there's some similarities and, and some difference so right we don't need to have right we don't have the mash right where we need to you know then gelatinize the starch and release those enzymes uh we do need to think about the sugar though the lactose right so Saccharomyces cerevisiae, our traditional brewer's yeast, doesn't utilize lactose. So you might have seen it in like the milkshake IPAs or, you know, the milk stouts where they have residual lactose in there because it provides sweetness and brewer's yeast can't utilize it. So what we do have to do is either, you know, you have to add an enzyme for the yeast to utilize the lactose and break it apart into glucose and galactose, or you have to use a yeast that can ferment lactose. And there's a couple of those. And so a lot of the research in my lab is around looking at lactose fermenting yeasts um, and how they can go about that. For the lactose fermenting yeasts, what are some general characteristics that are associated with those? You know, you, you think about like Belgian yeast traditionally gives you peaches and white pepper, you know, what are, what are the notes that you're getting off these ones? So traditionally, when we talk about ethanol conversion from lactose, there is a, a a yeast species, Cluveromyces marxianus, which has been used a lot. Sometimes it produces some off notes uh, to ferment lactose and ethanol. But actually, you mentioned the Belgian yeast. Because those have become so popular in the U.S., right, those are Britannomyces species, okay? And turns out back in the 70s, there was a little research by USDA where they noted that there was one species of Britannomyces, and this might, I know this might get too, too geeky, but Breclus nei that can actually ferment lactose into ethanol. Now, it wasn't as efficient as the Cluveromyces, but it could do it. And because it wasn't as efficient then, like, you know, academic research, they kind of ignored it. And sometimes it's hard to find these yeast, but because of this big boom in, you know, small yeast houses for home brewers and things like that, which were really kind of 
booming in you know the mid you know 2000 actually like 2010 to 2015 you could buy Britannomyces clausenii from a yeast supplier like White Labs or Omega Labs and so I bought that in and I was like, well, does it really ferment lactose? Do these species that, you know, these strains that we can get ferment lactose and what flavors do they produce? And we could do it. So we showed that we could ferment with Breclus NEI. It produces these kind of uh, bready, appley cider notes on top of the whey. And it kind of mitigates uh, some of the dairy notes that, you know, you get with the whey. It pulls them back and started to produce like a very interesting base, right? And that was kind of, when we started to do those fermentations, that's when it, it made it clear to me that that we could transform this yogurt way into something that consumers might actually drink. And so that was kind of the, the first step. But yeah, so this, this Breclus NEI, right, is, and it's what a lot of the research in the lab is about. And how long is the fermentation process for this? It depends on the yeast. So with uh, the Britannomyces clausenii, it's about two weeks. If we do like a Saccharomyces with enzyme, it's about, you know, a week. So depending again on what you want. So, you know, the benefit with the enzyme and using, you know, a traditional brewer's yeast is that you've got a wider palette of flavors, right, that you can play with those different types of yeast. So it depends on what you want to do. Part of my work is developing a toolbox, right, yeah. for converting whey uh, into products. And then once you have kind of that base, are you shifting into different flavors or, or adjuncts or anything? Uh, so the way we're working with it right now is, you know, all right, so one thing, all right, so we have that, we have to, you know, decide if we're going to hydrolyze the sugars or use the yeast. Another important part that's related to the brewing process, just to, to keep it in there, is that, you know, because it's coming from yogurt, there's, right, a lot of lactic acid bacteria, right? That's what we use to ferment our yogurt with. We don't necessarily want that, you know, downstream in the brewing process, contaminating our tanks, brewers aren't happy. So just like in a beer, what we'll do is we'll heat treat the whey, like we heat treat our wort, and we'll bring it up kill off the lactic acid bacteria, then we'll cool it down, oxygenate, and add our yeast and do our fermentation. And once we're done our fermentation, right, we'll do, you know, standard, you know, filtration, centrifugation that you would do at the end of the brewing process, carbonate, and then we flavor it up. Really, you can use anything your mind could, can think of, right? For Norway, you know, we're using real fruits, real juices. So, you know, we're using lemon concentrates, we're using boysenberry concentrates, depending on, on the product. Um, but I played around with, you know, aging it on oak chips. I don't have a commercial product with that yet, but, you know, to just kind of see. How did that turn out? Because I'm, I'm, and I'm sorry, so with the, the base, if you, if you were to kind of like describe or kind of give us an idea of like what the base tastes like before you do the, the additives. Right, so the 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 straight fermented base is, is again. It's kind of like um, it's got notes of like apple fruitiness, a little bready yeastness to it, right? So it's it's kind of like that with like an undertone. You get like a slight undertone of that lactic yogurt, but it's not overpowering. Okay, and I'm assuming pretty low ABV. Yeah, so um, sometimes right, we you can you talked about adjuncts. We can sometimes add a little bit extra sugar to bump it up. Mm -hmm. um, if you're fermenting just straight whey, the yogurt whey, you're typically around two and a half percent ABV, and then you bump it up with a little extra sugar, and and you can go a little bit higher. So, um, and we balance that out, right? Our our products for for Norway are four percent ABV. So so crisp, light, refreshing is kind of what you're going for. What is what we're going for exactly? Nice. Yeah. And so when you age something like that on oak chips, I'm just trying to, like, how did that, how did that turn out? I can't even put my head around it. Yeah, it, 
it was a nice deep complexity, mm-hmm. right? And then I put a little bit of and that one I think I put a little apricot in there and and it was a nice a nice balance. As you see, you know, we we think about like these new ideas of fermenting whey and actually there are, you know, reutilizing our foods efficiently, right? Back, you know, 100 200 years ago, we didn't want anything to go to waste. And so actually there is a tradition in Iceland uh, that's at least captured in the in the literature where they would take the whey from their strain yogurt called skier, and they would take that, and this is also what, what had me put it on oak, was they would put it into wood barrels, and they would let it age over a year, and somehow, right, it would become alcoholic. And it's then we don't have the research to know what microbes were responsible for that back then, or if they ended up adding alcohol to it, but that was that's what it says in the text. And so I was like, oh, well, I wonder, you know, if we, you know, if we put this on a little oak, what, what, might that, what might that lead to, you know, down the road? So, oh, that sounds like so much fun. Um, <laughs> so, uh, this product is ready and available for sale. I thought I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I spied it in Wegmans. Um, it is, yes. So, yeah, we we just launched in Western New York uh, about a week and a half ago. And so, what we've done, right, with a little little filtration, you know, we've kind of cleaned up some of the flavors and uh, and then you know kept it nice light, added some light nice fruit. To make Norway, which we're calling a hard Nordic seltzer, right? Kind of based on that Nordic tradition, and uh, and the idea there is that you know we are better for you or better than the other seltzers because we've got way more in the can. We've got these then the calcium that's naturally present in the whey, the magnesium, the potassium, right? All these great minerals, uh, vitamin B12, which comes from the you know from the whey, uh, and so it really is right. There's like 30% of your daily calcium is in one can of Norway. No way. And so, right. Yes, no way. That. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Like, the number of way puns that I had to write out and then, like, write underneath, like, SJ, no, don't do that on, on air. Um, <laughs> it's embarrassing. and basically a walking dad joke. Um, but, okay, so that that is wonderful. And, um, you know, it's funny. When you say, like, the better for you alcohol space, like, immediately red flags go off in my head because for the most part, those kinds of claims have been, you know, bloated or. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And it's not quite a, you know, a health claim, you know, better for you aspirationally, I guess, but it does have right these, these natural components to it that are not found in any other kind of beverage out there. Yeah. I mean, when you say you're getting 30% of the calcium needed in your day in one can, I mean, that's, that's crazy. Now, the sustainability side is also something that I feel like kind of includes into that better for you ethos. And when you say, you know, kind of using, I mean, you had said something about like, there's how how much goes down the drain typically? Like, I mean, how much are you rescuing? Yeah. Well, right. I mean, we're, we're starting off small right now, but so in New York state, if you were to, you know, kind of literally pull together all the the yogurt way that's that's being made every year you would fill uh, 200 olympic size swimming pools every year that's just in new york state and it's about 10 times more if you're talking about all the yogurt way in the country so we're talking about 2000 olympic size swimming pools uh, of way and so right we're we're still small right now but we're trying to capture every bit of that that we can and redirect it all right to products that have value for everyone no, that's amazing. Now, I, I always kind of like to do a little bit of a shout out to the home brewers out there who are kind of tinkering and playing around with things. And you are no stranger to 
tinkering and having fun with other fermentations. Are there other beverages that you would recommend that maybe homebrewers dip their toes into? So yeah, so whey is a fun one. Mm-hmm. I would also say, you know, I've done uh, another, I've always been interested in, right, in, in you know, different fermentations. And so some of our, our work too, I mentioned kind of developing the, the sugar brews right way back in the day for Miller, where we were using corn sugar and it wasn't for flavor. So back then I was like, well, what happened if we took it the other way? And so there's a tradition uh, in Latin America uh, of brewing with, you know, just corn, right? So there are these corn-based beers called chichas that are, you know, in, in Peru, in the Andes Mountains of Ecuador. Sometimes, yeah, they're primarily from corn. Some are also made from cassava. And so, you know, they bring these unique flavors um, that you wouldn't find in, in, a, in a common beer. And so I, I've done a lot of home brewing with those malting my own corn in my apartment. Um, and actually, eventually, you know, again, I, I like to, to bring fermentations to, to market. So uh, that kind of concept with a friend of mine who I'd met at, at Miller back in the day, he decided to start a brewery that's called Those Luces out in Denver. And they focus on making, right, these kind of, you know, chicha, you know, like we call Amer- true American style beers, right, based on ingredients and traditions that have a long history here. In, in the Americas. We do that. We also do stuff, uh, polkes, which are brewed from, from maguey, um, and, and things like tabache, which are brewed from, from pineapple. Yeah, I feel like I've seen a handful of uh, ready-to-drink tapache products kind of cropping up, especially like in the LA, like Arizona area and stuff like that. So I think, I think we're going to continue to see, what is it? How would you categorize it? Alternative fermentation beverages? <laughs> Just, you know, more, I guess, you know, more, more, you know, I'd call those local, right? Because they're here in, in the Americas, you know, mm-hmm. traditional local, local fermentations. For traditional sure. local. And fermentation. redefining what beer is, right? It doesn't, I feel like, again, for me, you know, beer has always been in the, in the craft, you know, world and, you know, growing up as a home brewer, right? It was always like the, the German beer laws, right? You know, it's got mall tops, you know, water and yeast and that's it. You can it, never, right? you can really, never escape the Reinheitsgebot. <laughs> but but really there there's such a wider tradition of what these kind of types of beverages that fill the beer space in a lot of other cultures that, that haven't been you know given uh, the proper attention right even though that they have a lot of rich you know i would in mexico city right now there's a rich tradition a great right uh, bubbling up of fermenting pulques and flavors and things like that that haven't yet crossed the border and uh and i hope they do because i think they're they're great tasting beverages that that deserve to be enjoyed oh i hope they do too i love pulque i could that's a that's a dangerous beverage for me it just goes down like a little too easy and then you're like oh i drank way too much (laughs) well thank you so much for taking the time to to join us on the show today please if if you are in western new york uh please seek out norway is there any way if someone's not in western new york for them to get the product is there any way they could order it or something or Right, right now we, you know, internet sales of alcohol is is challenging with distribution for beer, right? So, at, at that point, right now we're we're just in Western New York. Um, hopefully, if the summer goes well, we'll be expanding, but but we'll see how it goes. Well, thankfully we've got some Wegmans down here, so hopefully, hopefully we see it in the in the summertime in the DC area. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to bring some down. Yeah, fingers crossed. Well, thank you so much, Sam. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for bringing on, SJ. Love love talking about Norway. This has been another episode of Beer Me Radio. 
you have any questions, comments, concerns, please reach out at Beer Me Radio on Instagram or beermeradio at gmail.com. Please like, follow, subscribe anywhere that you get a podcast. Give us all the stars and the fun comments. We love to hear from you. Otherwise, we will catch you next time. Cheers. Cheers.